Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Jen Zart about this new publication, new translation of the work of the second century astrologer Vadius Valens, which is coming out this week, and that we uh, I'm publishing, and Jen helped me to put together doing the layout on. Um, so it's kind of a big announcement uh, to release. So hey, thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yes, you were joining me from, I see, this this gigantic library that you've been building over the past few years, right? Yeah. So the Celestial Arts Education Library is where I'm sitting in Olympia, Washington. And I began collecting collections of astrology books somewhat in, I think, about 2013. Uh, Linda Lehman came up to me at NCGR in Philadelphia, and she said, I've got two boxes of these German astrology books. Can you find them a home? And I was thinking to myself, they're at home with me. <laughs> so mm. over the years, it's grown and grown, and now it has become an institute. Amazing. All right. And um, and we'll talk about that more later. You are the head of a publishing company, and you're starting like an astrology book publishing empire. And so I um, reached out to you for this project. We've been working on this for a couple of years now, um, and we're publishing it through my company, but you did the layout and helped to sort of shepherd the entire project to completion. So I wanted to talk to you today about that process of publishing the book, talk a little bit about who Vadius Valens was and the significance of his work, uh, later the significance of this translation, as well as a little bit of an overview of some of the things that people might expect to find. Um, yeah, but this is uh, a pretty big deal, though. We've been working on it for like two and a half years now, I think, right? Yeah, you had said something about not ever seeing charts next to Riley's translation, and that might be skipping ahead, but I think that was the part of our conversation that led to the idea of turning it into a book. Yeah, so Valens, for those that aren't familiar, don't have any background in this, Valens, Vedius Valens was an astrologer who lived in the second century. Um, he lived in the Roman Empire during that time, uh, probably starting in the city of Antioch, but eventually he says that he moved to Egypt, probably to Alexandria, where he set up a school for astrology. And he wrote this series of textbooks for his students in Greek, um, which he left for them, which um, demonstrated how to practice astrology, basically, and how astrology was practiced in his day. And um, this book, which is known as the Anthology, it's a collection of little books that have been put together of all of his writings, um, and it's nine books long at this point, but it's probably the single most important surviving source for studying and understanding the practice of ancient astrology because Valens uses over a hundred different chart examples in the text. So you can actually see not just the theory of the techniques, but you can see how he's actually applying them in practice and what his interpretations are and things like that. So Valens was pretty pretty sort of prominent later in the later Hellenistic period and in the medieval period, but then he sort of became forgotten as people stopped learning how to read Greek in terms of just contemporary astrologers. So eventually um, there was a translation of Valens that was released about a decade ago by Mark Riley for free as a PDF online, but it didn't contain any of the diagrams to demonstrate the charts for chart examples um, whenever Valens would explain them in the text because Mark hadn't really finished his translation and he got, hadn't got to the point of putting diagrams in it yet. So that was one of the primary motivations for this project was to go through and kind of finish and bring to completion Mark's translation finally. Yeah. Did you know he was going to put diagrams in or was that sort of a 
consideration that he had ever had? Um, yeah, I mean, he had one other academic paper, uh, which was his his survey of Vadius Valens, where he did actually he refers to a couple of diagrams in the text that he meant to insert. Um, so yeah, I do think he would have. And in earlier publications, like in Neugebauer and Van Hosen's Greek horoscopes from like the 1950s, they had Valens's text, but then they also created some diagrams at the end of the book in order to illustrate and just visualize the, the positions. And I actually think Valens's text probably originally did contain some illustrations, um, but like many things, when you're copying over texts over hundreds of years by hand, um, diagrams and tables and other illustrations have a way of falling out of the text and not getting copied over. Yeah. And that was the case with several of the major, even just tables of information in Valens's text, which either fell out of the text um, and had to be reconstructed later by by scholars and academics. So maybe I had a maybe a misconception of the genesis of the anthology because I thought his students had taken notes and that was part of what became these books. Is that true? Mm. No, it was more that Valen seems to have been writing these textbooks to his students. And he actually refers to one of them named Marcus at one point. He like dedicates one of the books to Marcus. And then later, as he's getting older in one of the later books of the anthology, because they were written at different times in his life, um, at one point he says like, you know, sorry, this isn't as like thorough as as I intended it to be, but my eyesight is failing. And he says, I'm I'm kind of depressed because of the death of one of my favorite students. And he did, I don't know if that was Marcus or if that was somebody else, but um, you can see that at one point later he talks about addressing this to one of his students and saying that he's leaving this book to him instead of like a lot of money because um, the information is so important and so valuable that he feels like by sort of leaving him with everything he knows about astrology, that that will be taking care of him in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So it's a whole series of, of different books, um, but it wasn't very well known until modern times, especially amongst astrologers, because um, in Europe and stuff, Latin became the common language. And then eventually, uh, even astrologers stopped reading Latin, and instead astrology books started being written in English and other languages in the 17th century, around the time of William Lilly and forward. So this text was kind of locked away. And it wasn't until the 20th century that there were some academics and some scholars that started to recover the text based on different manuscripts that had survived. And they published some of the first um, modern printed versions of Valens's anthology, but they published it in Greek. So unless you knew ancient Greek, you still couldn't read the text. And so most astrologers and other people didn't really have access to it. Mm -hmm. So um, go ahead. No, I just wonder also to what extent in terms of the transmission of astrological knowledge in history, a lot of it seemed to also have been carried by the history of science and the academics studying the history of astronomy. And in that field, they take Ptolemy as the sort of expert in Greek astrology. But as we know, you know, Ptolemy was more of a compiler and not a tactician on the ground, right? Um, and so that seems to have been what superseded Valens in a way, because he had written the Almagest and the Tetrabiblos. And so for academics, it was sort of like, okay, here we have some kind of evidence of a crossover between the two fields. Yeah, that was what was so fascinating about um, Valens and Ptolemy is that they lived roughly around the same time in the middle of the 
uh, second century, probably in the same city, probably in or around Alexandria, Egypt, um, where you know yet the famous Library of Alexandria was located at, at certain points in history. So they were both contemporaries, but they don't seem to have been familiar with each other. And what happened is that um, Ptolemy was a polymath, and he wrote several different works on different areas of science. Um, so he wrote a work on like on astronomy, on astrology, on um, harmonics, on geography, on a bunch of different topics. And he was just this sort of super smart guy that was trying to create a grand theory of everything that tied everything together. Um, but what happened is that his work on astronomy was so groundbreaking and so revolutionary for the time that it became the standard that everybody used in order to calculate astronomical positions from that point forward. So that gave him a great deal of prestige and made him so famous that his other works became famous and became preserved as well. So that made his astrological work, the Tetrabiblos, also one of the most popular works because he was such a famous astronomer that his it sort of raised the level of his astrological work as well. And then that astrological work is the only work that continuously from the second century forward kept being transmitted and translated into different languages periodically so that it was the one ancient work that sort of survived into all subsequent ages. And as a result of that, people often assumed that Ptolemy's work was the most representative of what astrology was like in the ancient world. And it was only later once certain works by Valens, for example, or other astrologers like Dorotheus were recovered that all of a sudden over the past few decades, scholars and astrologers started to realize that Ptolemy wasn't necessarily the most representative astrologer, but in some ways he was kind of like a reformer and his work is very theoretical. So it outlines his sort of theoretical um, statements and assumptions about how he think astrology would best be practiced. Um, but the tr the work itself, unlike Valens, doesn't contain any example charts. So it's not quite as practical in the same way that Valens is, in that sometimes there's open questions about how you put some of those principles into practice. Yeah. And it seems like you can even sense that. Ptolemy's strength was as a polymath, not as an astrologer. And in that way, the examples that aren't there are evidence of him just not necessarily being somebody who practiced what he was compiling into that text. Whereas with Valens, you can see him in practice. You can follow his mind step by step. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. And um, yeah, that's what makes it valuable. Just like in other areas, for example, in the 17th century, that's one of the things that makes William Lilly's text so important is that it contains so many chart examples. So he's not just talking about the theory, but he's showing you this is an actual client consultation and this was the delineation that I gave and this is how it worked out so that you can see not just the theory but the practice. And Valens is the ancient counterpart to that because he's the one person that includes just so many examples that um, it really shows you how everything implies in practice. So th that's the main thing that we tried to do with this book was um, you know, Riley's text has been in circulation for over a decade now online as a PDF, but not having those chart examples, I realized at a certain point that um, a lot of younger students were reading the work but not really understanding it or they weren't um, getting as much out of it as they were supposed to because they weren't sort of writing down the chart examples and drawing them out so that you could see them visually. 
So that's one of the things that we set out to do with this text was include all of those chart examples in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that style of learning is important. You know, in the history of astrology, people didn't always draw charts. Um, was it expected that you would do that on your own, or? Yeah, I suspect that either there was an assumption because one of the things is that um, we have several of these boards that survive from the ancient world, from the Greco-Roman or from Hellenistic astrology, where they had almost like these wooden chess boards that had uh, a, zodi- a zodiac or a zodiacal circle inscribed on them. And then the theory was that they would um, a person would get their chart calculated by somebody that knew the astronomy and the mathematics, and that person would write down the planetary positions on like a little piece of paper or a piece of papyrus. But then when they would go to the astrologer, um, the astrologer would take out some stones that matched each of the planets, and they would place them around on this this board in order to replicate or display the person's chart. And that's probably how chart drawings were done uh, in ancient times, either like that or in the medieval period. There's some references to like a lower key version of that where people might have drawn charts in sand, which mm-hmm. also makes sense. So it's possible that with Valens's text, the student was just expected to go through and then write out the chart each time so that they could kind of visualize and internalize it. But not having that in the text directly makes it a little bit more, more challenging or more tricky than it, it has to be. Yeah, because it's assuming the person can visualize it in their mind or that they already know something that if they're just trying to learn it, you know, it helps to see the diagram instead of being forced to produce it. You know, that's like one of the last stages of learning is production. So, yeah, and there's no reason to make things any harder than they already are because you're already like dealing with reading this ancient text, which, which even though it's translated into English, um, is still not super easy to read, like reading a second century text. And there's still kind of um, some challenges or a learning curve involved in that. Um, but that's why, uh, for the purpose of making this more understandable, this is kind of a necessary project. And it was a project that I've done at different points over the years with my students, where I would take different chapters that were dealing with different techniques, and I would create diagrams for the chart examples. And then we would talk about and do commentaries on that or record different commentaries walking through the text in Riley's translation. Um, but I realized at a certain point a couple of years ago that that project needed to be finished and I needed to make the diagrams and the chart examples for the rest of the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you've been walking with this book, this version of Riley for quite some time. Yeah. If you read um, my first, for example, my first um, podcast was called Traditional Astrology Radio. And one of the very early episodes, I, I started that actually on my birthday 12 years ago. Um, I'm actually about to hit the repetition of that in the perfections, but I started it on my birthday 12 years ago on November 1st, 2010. And about two months later, Riley dropped his translation in December of 2010 online suddenly. And this was the first time that Valens had ever been translated in its entirety into English. So it was a really huge deal. And I recorded a podcast on it that's still out there somewhere on the traditional astrology radio website um, to this day, sort of talking about it and its significance. But even before then, there were other translations of Valens that existed. Um, the primary one was in 19, starting in 1993 and 1994, Robert Schmidt translated the first seven books of Valens between 1993 and 2001. I have copies of them here. 
Do you have the little yeah. the little mm-hmm. booklets? The little Do you blue have them? books. Yeah. There they are. Yeah, the little blue These booklets. Little friends in their little, you know, you fold it over and staple it. Yeah. See, that was super important because that's that's early. They published those themselves through this innovative subscription um, strategy where basically they did preliminary translations of a bunch of early Greek and Latin astrological texts, and then they would self-publish them and actually like print them up themselves and staple and bind them and send them out to subscribers. So through that, the astrological community actually sort of crowdfunded the translation of a bunch of these texts from the ancient astrology, including Valens, which had never been translated before. Um, and that was a really huge deal because for many people, that was the actually the first time that we were, were able to read anything about Valens. And starting in 2004 and 2005, that's when I really got into that text first through Schmidt's translations. And in those books, um, Robert Hand and Robert Schmidt had gone through and also inserted the chart examples as diagrams. Mm-hmm. So that was how I sort of in a way, grew up reading Valens and understanding the text and being able to follow things. Yeah, they used that. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of square chart. In this yeah, way. that's one. That's one of the formats that's that sort of blend between a square chart and a circular chart. That was one of the chart formats used in the ancient world. There were a bunch of different square and circular chart formats that were used depending on the source or the author or the era. But um. That translation by Schmidt, it was originally it was just supposed to be preliminary. He he always said this was just a rough draft and it's never meant to be a final translation because they were still learning things and they were just translating at this rapid pace. Um, and they would later, his plan was to go back and finish and finalize it at some point in the future. Um, but then unfortunately he never got a chance to do that. And he passed away a few years ago before mm-hmm. publishing and releasing his final translation series. Having only done those preliminary translations of the f- first seven books of Valens. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, Schmidt, with his translations, because they were preliminary and they were done early in his career, early in his understanding of Valens, um, I, I don't think he, he never um, republished them. He would never agree to republish the preliminary translations. And so they went out of print and they became very scarce. I think because since they were so early and they reflected an early stage of his his thinking and his understanding of Hellenistic astrology that he, he didn't want them out there or he might have been embarrassed about like typos or mistakes or other things like that and really wanted to wait to republish them for the final versions to be done but as a result of that what happened is that they just completely fell out of circulation by the late 2000s at the at the very latest and became inaccessible to an entire generation of astrologers and academics who otherwise it would have been nice to to be able to take advantage of some of that work. So that was the other reason why Riley's translation was a huge deal when he released it online for free in 2010 because all of a sudden Valens was accessible again. It was accessible for free. It was available as a PDF through his website and also it contained the entire text. So Schmidt had only done the first seven books, but Riley had translated all nine books of the anthology, so it was actually the first complete translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these these you can see over here in my screen. These um, Project Hindsight books are they don't have any text on the spine, so it's actually hard to even find which one is the Valens volume and which one is the next one. Um, and as a person who's managing books, it's hard to. Um, yeah, work with them. It's just the difficult format for publication. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so that so that was part of 
what happened. And so about Riley himself, Riley, Mark T. Riley, he's a, an academic scholar. He's a classic scholar that taught uh, Greek and Latin, and, and he had a period of his career in the 1980s and 1990s where he went back and he got really focused on um, the study of the history of science, and he got into studying some of the works of the ancient astrologers, and he authored several papers on the works of the ancient astrologers, including or especially Badius Valens and Claudius Ptolemy, and published some of these works, uh, these papers in academic journals. And at a certain point, he was actually contracted to do a really extensive survey of the work of Vadius Valens for this really important um, German publication on the classical world. And Riley did most of that survey. It was like this huge 50-page survey of the works of Vadius Valens. Um, but then unfortunately, that um, periodical or, or that series went out of business or stopped being published before he was able to get that article in print. So um, he didn't publish that, and instead he just released that survey online, I think around 1986 or so, or maybe it was in the year 2000. Uh, I have it in the, the preface of the, this book. Um, so he released that survey online for free, and that putting it online for free, it actually was used and incorporated into another of, of other academic works, like this 2004 book by Joanna Komarowska that was on Vadius Valens. It was titled Vadius Valens of Antioch in Intellectual Monography. Um, because one of the most important things about Riley's survey is that he did a lot of work on Valens's chronology um, because Valens uses 100 chart examples, but because he uses these chart examples and he connects them with specific events in a person's life, uh, Riley showed that you can actually use that in order to determine the different uh, time periods in which Valens was actually active. Like if he's using a birth chart for somebody, you know, from let's say who was born in 130 CE, and then he says that this person died in at the age of 20, that means he was around and he was aware of this person's chart by at least the 150s CE, for example. And that gives you sort of a time frame of knowing that Valens was looking at charts around that period, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that was really one of the most important things about Riley's survey was a lot of the work that he did on Valens's chronology, amongst a number of other things. Um, but during the course of compiling the survey, Riley actually made his own translation, like a rough draft of a translation of Valens for his own personal private use. Um, and he used that and sort of drew on it during the course of writing his his survey. But he ended up feeling like there were some other fragments of Valens that survived from the medieval tradition, especially in Arabic. And he felt like um, until some of those fragments could be translated, he didn't feel like his translation would ever be as fully comprehensive as he would like. So he decided not to go ahead and publish his translation, and he just um, ended up moving on to other projects and going into other areas of classics from the late 1990s forward. Um, and published other books on Latin and other other areas of classics, and sort of moved on from astrology at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, when he at least has this synthesis of the the Pingri version with the Kroll version, um, it still feels really like so much comparison, line by line, and matching this with that, and figuring out like just it's like zippering together two different prior scholars who've 
dealt with Valens's text. And so um, inside the PDF version, it can look really like complicated because you're looking at that critical edition nomenclature as well as trying to learn ancient astrology. Yeah, I think because I think part of what must have happened. So there were there were two different versions of Valens of the original Greek text that have been edited and published in modern times. And one of them was by Kroll in 1908, and another was by Pingree in I think 1986. And I suspect that part of what happened is that I haven't asked Riley about this directly, but I think he must have started working with the Kroll uh, version of Valens first, which was the original critical edition in the early to mid-1980s. And then he must have gotten a hold of Pingree's translation after it came out in 1986. And then he started incorporating the citations in order to make sure he was citing both. So I think that's part of what happened there. And when you read the translation uh, of the anthology that's online as a PDF, you'll see him uh, citing the page numbers on each page of page of both the Kroll edition and the Pingree edition. Um, but for the purpose of this translation that we're publishing here, I decided just to go with the uh, Pingree numbers for the chapter heading because that's the more recent and authoritative edition that everybody cites at this point. Yeah, and also the, for the scholar who wants to go through and see the nitty-gritty of um, Riley's work, they can always reference that PDF edition that's free. But for the person who's trying to learn the astrology, those were pieces of information that were distracting a little bit from the flow of reading and mm -hmm. trying to really consume what Valens was saying. Yeah, because I mean, if anybody needs to cite the critical edition passages they're going to know enough at this point about Greek and Latin to be able to, to go into the critical edition and look it up versus if you're just reading a translation, just knowing the chapter numbers is usually like sufficient or if you want to cite the page number as it appears in this new published translation, that's going to be sufficient for most people. Yeah. So Riley had done this like whole translation of Valens and then he just sort of like set it aside um, but then in 2010, he was talking to another scholar named Roger Pierce, who was doing some research into ancient astrology. And um, I think Riley mentioned to Roger that he'd done this translation, he never released it. And Roger Pierce was like, you should absolutely post that online or something to that effect. And so Mark's like, okay, you know, fine. And he just like released it as a PDF. And that was like a huge landmark event. It was released on December 14th, 2010. Um, back then. So that was the original release. Um, Have you looked at the astrology of that date? Um, I haven't in a while, but um, yeah, that would be interesting to look at just because um, you know there's a lot of interesting things now in terms of chronology and things. And that's why I tried to mention some of these dates in the preface so that people could piece some of this together if they wanted to, because you know, we have that release date, we have now the release date of this book, which is about to be released on October 16th, 2022. And one of the things that's so interesting is that we actually probably have the birth chart of Valens himself um, all the way back from the year 120 CE. So you can actually look at his birth chart and it's interesting to see some of the transits that he's actually having right now this week because he's got some like significant transits going on, which are sort of fitting in terms of him you know, having a new book release almost 2,000 years later. What about zodiacal releasing? That's a little difficult because doing somebody's zodiac releasing uh, for you know eighteen hundred almost two thousand years, you've got to run it. You've got to deal with questions like, do you do a level one loosing of the bond? For example, <laughs> yeah. 
like you can usually only ever do a level two loosing of the bond in a normal human span lifetime. But yeah, uh, yeah, level one loosing of the bond and other questions like that, it gets a little little murky. Yeah, it'd be it'd be good for a listener to try it and see. You know, I have been maybe we to could, like maybe ahead. we could convince Kent by to update the software on natal slash time lord that research tool. Right. He's got it set up for 200 years, but I bet it'd be easy to make 2000. Yeah, that's, that's true. I'll see what I can do that. Or <laughs> I wish I need to extend my like annual perfections wheel. Uh, yes. it, you know, it'll calculate up to about, about like eight, 80 years old or something like that. But I need to extend that wheel just a little bit to, you know, calculate balances perfections now that he's like uh, 1800 years old. Yep. Just for this once. Right. Um, all right. Well, if anyone wants to calculate balance perfections, let me know in the comments below because uh, I would be curious about that. So let's talk a little bit about Balance's birth chart because this is actually one of the most fascinating things um, about his text as a, as a case study. So there's um, this one chart throughout the anthology that Valens keeps mentioning and he keeps using like over and over again this one example chart and he never says that it's his chart specifically however he knows like an awful lot about this one person um he knows their date of conception um he knows that they were involved in a shipwreck and had a number of like relationship issues in their 30s um, he knows that like this person's like one of their parents died before the other. Um, he just knows an abnormal amount about this person of, of like intimate details about this person's life, and he keeps using their chart over and over again in some of the most critical um, chapters of the anthology. So as a result of that, in the 1980s, when David Pingree published his edition of Valens's text, he pointed out like this is actually probably Valens's chart. And that would not be super surprising. It wouldn't be the only instance of this in the ancient world because um, we have two other examples of Hephaestu of Thebes and Manetho, who also include their own birth charts in their texts as teaching examples. So Valens doing that would be kind of consistent, even if he doesn't mention it outright as his own. Um, additionally, when he gives events in this person's life, the chronology matches up perfectly with about the time period where we think Valens was active around the middle of the, the second century. So that Riley also thinks that this is definitely Valens's chart. And I think pretty much most people understand that this is Valens's chart at this point in time. Yeah. And the, the anonymity is definitely a pedagogic tool, right? A teaching tool of saying, well, if he draws attention to himself as saying, this is coming from my lived experience, plus my astrological knowledge to a certain extent, it might skew the student's perception. So by mm. keeping it as an anonymous example, it teaches the the substance of the astrology without drawing attention to him in his biography as like the authority. Yeah, because this is a re recurring actual issue for astrologers even in modern times, like over the past century, where we see people like doing similar things. Of there's sometimes astrologers that will use their chart in a lecture or in a book and be very open about that. And there's other instances where somebody will, um, let's say, use their chart but do it anonymously and not make it clear that that's actually what's happening. Yeah. I think there, there's actually somebody I, I did an interview with last month that said on, on the podcast that they had used their chart anonymously in their book, but they were open to sort of acknowledging that that was their chart now. 
Right. And then you have someone like Robert Blaschke, whose chart isn't just inside the book. I think it graces the cover of one of his books. You know, he's always okay. talking about his own chart and how it works out. And um, I think Dave Roel, another person in the history of publishing in our field, um, had written a preface to a text of a medical astrologer, Blagrave. And in it, he predicted his own death mm. using his chart, using the medical astrology in the book that he was about to publish. And he was accurate. And it was kind of spooky. Okay. Yeah. Well, Dave Roel was somebody who, when Riley came out with this translation, Dave Roel, who ran, he'd been republishing a lot of different translations of um, academic translations of different astrological texts and other older astrological texts. He'd been republishing them in modern print form for over a decade. And he actually originally approached Riley about publishing his translation in 2011 and was going to, but then he wasn't able to finish that and he passed away in in 2014 mm -hmm. unexpectedly yeah so um but yeah so there's a lot of issues there's there's also reasons why astrologers might not want to use like be clear that it's their chart i know that there's some discussion that's coming up recently about like magical pr practitioners that that are wary about sharing their chart for different reasons um and I know that there's other astrologers that are kind kind of get annoyed sometimes when people like overly focus on their chart in lectures, or sometimes there's a perception like if you're using your own chart, then it's entirely about the subjective that it, that it almost comes off as more subjective, whatever you're trying to teach at that point, rather than using a more supposedly like objective example. So there's a whole range of different reasons why somebody might use their chart but not say that it's their chart um and we can't really know for sure why valens didn't specifically say his chart or maybe he did say it was his at some point and, and that part of the text just drops out because we know that we don't have the entire anthology and there's different parts of it that are in very bad shape where sometimes only a single manuscript survives which contains the text like for example in book nine and sometimes there's like major sections where there's obviously just issues with the text. So it's possible that we're just missing something where Valens was like, you know, hey, this is my chart and this is why I'm using it and something else, you know? Yeah, yeah. But the hypothesis is a good one. I mean, it seems to track over the over the decades of people thinking about it this way. Um, you know, just also with the work that Riley's done with it since the idea came to Mount Light. And, you know, you've also worked extensively with this text. And so it would be yeah, it would be probably fair to say that it likely is. Yeah. So, um, given that, let's share. Let me share the chart for those watching the video version. Um, so, if this, you know, chart example that, that he just uses a million times is his chart, which it probably is. This is the data. So, Valens would have been born on February eighth, one twenty CE or one twenty AD. At approximately 6:35 p.m. Um, in what is now modern-day Antakya, Turkey, um, which is the ancient city of Antioch in the in the Mediterranean or near the Mediterranean, so Valens's chart should have early Virgo rising, the ascendant somewhere in early Virgo. Um, he was a night chart with the Moon in Scorpio in early Scorpio, the Sun at 18 degrees of Aquarius. Uh, the moon at one degree of Scorpio, Jupiter's in the second whole sign house at 23 degrees of Libra, and it's actually stationing. Venus and Mercury tropically are at 
uh, in late Capricorn. Uh, his Saturn tropically was in late Gemini. And then in terms of modern outer planets that Valens wouldn't have known about, his Uranus was in Virgo in the first, Neptune in Leo in the 12th, and Pluto was in Aries in the eighth whole sign house. So there's a little bit of an issue with um, the zodiac problem because in Valens's time, the tropical and sidereal zodiac were super close and super aligned. So many astrologers weren't aware that there was even a distinction or that precession was an issue, and they were drawing elements from both the tropical and sidereal zodiac. So this actually becomes an issue when you're talking about Valens and looking at his chart, because when Valens describes this chart, he actually um, describes it in a way where he says that Saturn was in Cancer, or at least by his calculations at the time, he thought Saturn was in Cancer and he thought Mercury was in Aquarius, which depending on what sidereal Ionamsha you use could match, for example, the Fagan-Allen Ionamsha that puts Saturn in, in Cancer and Mercury in Aquarius. So Valence may have been using sidereal tables, um, but there's a whole discussion about in some academic papers, like by F Alexander Jones, for example, where he says at one point that Va Valens may have ended up sort of using sidereal positions, but he may have believed himself to be using tropical ones. And I know he does have a statement at one point in the book about how sometimes um, the tables would say one thing, but then observationally he would see planets be in a different place. And one of the issues with that is that, especially prior to Ptolemy, um, astronomical calculations were not always super, super precise um, in the ancient world because they were still having trouble, for example, calculating certain planets, like especially Mars, you'll see it be um, kind of off when it comes to recalculating the charts. Mm. Yeah, so um, this is Valens's chart, and it's really interesting. His chart's really interesting in terms of even just like thinking about current transits and things like that, because you know, right now this month we know that Saturn is stationing at 18 degrees of Aquarius. So it's kind of interesting to me that Saturn's stationing exactly on the degree of his sun right now at 18 Aquarius. And then there's also a solar eclipse that's coming up at the end of this month, uh, I believe at one or two degrees of Scorpio, and that's going to fall exactly on Valens' moon in the third whole sign house at one degree of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. So kind of fascinating, and I know you did a talk about this recently, and we've talked about this before, about how for some reason the way that astrology works, one of the weird surprising twists about astrology is that your birth chart keeps working after you die and sometimes things about your legacy or your life or the memory of you or works that you did in your lifetime continue to be relevant or echo in terms of activations to your chart even after your death. Yes, and in fact it is Valens's um, technique which Schmidt terms zodiacal releasing that is really 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 intense for that if you have an accurate birth time you can get down to the day sometimes of when someone's going to come back into popular news. So that's why I was asking you, you know, have you done Valens's 2000 years of zodiacal releasing to see perhaps, um, well, I guess 1800, but still um, the idea of, you know, I want to bet whether you do a loosing from L1 or not would be shown by whether or not something lines up with this weekend and this book coming out. Yeah, for sure. 
So um, well, I will look into that because that would be fun to calculate. Yeah, and I still think that I, I'm just going to go back there. But the idea of doing a perfections table for two thousand years also seems kind of fun because I mean, right. posthumous astrology really, you know, if if because what I like about when I first encountered um, Valens was through you actually and your teachings on zodiacal releasing, and then I collected a collection of works from a, an a astrologer who had passed away in North Carolina. Her name is Cynthia Schmidt, and now all of her books live here. And in Cynthia's books, she had a binder from um, Robert's class on zodiacal releasing, uh, which was never distributed because she took the class and there it is. And he had this whole preface around like, um, this is a super potent thing, so be careful, right? Um, and it's only been in Valens' text where this way of calculating time is discussed, right? And so in that way, like, to be able to see when someone's going to be eminent based off of their lot of spirit, that is just a cruel, cool thing. The math about it really got me excited. I started drawing art about it because I was like, oh, these are like periods you can memorize. Like, let's create little graphs. And I ran out of graph paper and had to run to Kent to make him new software because it's a fractal. And like, you know, if I was going to like draw everything out, I would have to like get a football stadium to complete it, you know. Um, but I just think what Valens came up with with Zodiacal Releasing from The Lot of Spirit is really cool. And so I use it a lot when I'm looking at someone's life to see like where, when are they going to be doing the thing that is their posthumous contribution? Cause it will live on without like beyond them, you know, like the fact that your chart exists at all means that it exists, whether or not you stick with it, you know? Yeah. Which is really interesting. Cause it does mean it has some interesting implications about like what the chart is and how astrology works and that it has something to do with the that moment in time being important and that moment in time echoing or reverberating throughout history. Um, yeah, that could be a whole episode or discussion in of itself at some point. Yeah. And then you get into converse progressions and transits, which are talked about by Alan Leo, by the way. And it's mm. like it reverberates forwards and backwards. It's not right. just unidirectional. So that is also my latest like excitement. But um, like that or or even like prenatal stuff, like prenatal indications, like the prenatal eclipse or things that happen prior to your birth somehow be re being relevant to your subsequent life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of it's very, very fascinating. But I'm glad that now you have given shape to this fourth book of Valens in a in a robust format. Heck, can you hold it up? You haven't held it up yet. <laughs> yeah, I know. I should have held it up at the beginning. So this is the first like proof copy, but this is what the book lo looks like. Um, it's designed in the same format uh, in font and everything as me and Demetra's books so that it will sit alongside them because it's kind of a nice companion to those books since both of our understanding of astrology, of Hellenistic and ancient astrology, is in large part, not exclusively, but in large part predicated on having read balance and our understanding of that text. Um, so now having this in print and in circulation in a final form of, of Riley's translation is really important in terms of people that want to go back and study Hellenistic astrology and want to understand some of the conclusions that we drew in our books. So um, on the cover, there is um, an illustration from a 19th century work of a, a drawing of a Greco-Roman coffin lid that survived from about the second century, from roughly about Valens's time period and roughly the same geographical location where it shows um, it shows a, a depiction of the Egyptian sky goddess, basically the goddess of the sky, and she's surrounded by illustrations of the 12 signs of the zodiac. Um, so it's a really cool depiction of the signs of the zodiac in the ancient world. And it has this interesting sort of blend between 
um, Mesopotamian and Egyptian and Greek motifs, which is basically the whole cultural synthesis and blend that was going on in the ancient world that led to the development of this type of astrology during the Hellenistic era. So I thought that would be a good image to have on the cover because it's really both sort of roughly contemporary with Valens, but also representative of the cultural context in which he lived and practiced astrology. Mm -hmm. And the crab on the front isn't a lobster. That is not a lobster. So we have, <laughs> we have evidence in the ongoing debate about lobster versus crab, and this is an ancient that is a round crab, I believe, rather than a, <laughs> an elongated lobster. So score another one for crab being the correct interpretation of cancer. There we go. It's yeah. been it's been published. That's probably the most important thing. Part of this <laughs> publication is just settling that debate and, and putting forward new evidence. Yes, um, yes. So you mentioning Zodiac releasing brought up that maybe we should talk about like some of the contents and the different like give an overview of the book basically in order to talk about what's in it and what are some of the things that people will find. Mm -hmm. All right. So <clears throat> generally speaking, book one of the anthology, it starts off right away with listing Valens. He introduces the planets and the signs of the zodiac, and he tells you what they signify and what their significations are, which is super interesting and super useful for understanding how the planets especially were conceptualized in ancient times. Um, it also, book one, has a bunch of astronomical stuff because it's kind of a preliminary book for, for learning how to calculate different things in a chart or different astronomical concepts. At the end of book one, another interesting feature is that it has a whole list of planetary combinations when there's two or three planets that are making an aspect to each other or are um, co-present in the same sign, which is basically in a sign-based conjunction. So Valens just gives this whole list of what it means when these different planets are mixing together and how their energies blend together in different ways, which is super useful um, for just understanding not just what the planets mean in isolation, but what they mean when they're actually together in a conjunction. So that's book, book one. Um, book two, it starts by talking about the triplicity lords of the sect light, which is an important sort of basic technique that Valens uses throughout the anthology in order to determine what the foundation or support of a person's nativity is like. Um, but then in book two, he goes into an introduction to the significations of the 12 houses, as well as the concept of lots. And he introduces different lots, like the lot of fortune and what it means, the lot of spirit, as well as other more exotic lots, like the lot of exaltation and the lot of bosses or the lot of foundation. Mm -hmm. So this this is book two is when he also starts introducing just a ton of chart examples. And just about every technique that he introduces, he eventually starts showing you um, what that actually looks like in the chart examples and how it how the technique actually applies in practice, which is just super valuable for understanding um, how he used even some of the more you know, abstract or theoretical techniques like lots, which seem more mathematical, um, he really just goes into it and uses example after example. So for example, here is where he first starts doing chart examples is in book two, uh, book two, chapter 22. Um, and I believe actually somebody identified this first chart. It may actually be um, a birth chart of a Roman emperor. I forget who, I think it might be Nero or somebody like that. Because he does, he never like says that this is like an emperor, but 
he he starts by saying he's going to use like an eminent chart and he shows indications for eminence in this person's life. So in the text, for example, he says, for clarification of the previous points, we will use examples, taking first a distinguished nativity. So he says this person's eminent, but he's not going to say who it is. So he says, um, the, here's a chart. He says, Sun in Scorpio, Moon in Cancer, Saturn in Aquarius, Jupiter in Sagittarius, Mars in Scorpio, Venus in Libra, Mercury in Scorpio, and Ascendant in Libra. So he's trying to demonstrate. So that's how in Riley's text it was, is just like saying that the placements basically, where most of the time balance will just tell you what the placements are by sign. And then we put this diagram in the right to illustrate it. And we didn't, we were very careful not to either add anything that Valens didn't say or to take anything out that he did say so that the diagram perfectly matches what's in the text um, as it should. But what those positions give you is it gives you the ability to calculate the sign placement of all the planets as well as the house placement because Valens was using whole sign houses in over a hundred of his chart examples, basically. Um, so then he goes into a whole delineation and it's explaining how the triplicity rulers of the sectlight work, as well as looking at the lot of fortune and its ruler and the lot of spirit and its ruler and how those um, connect to why he became so eminent in his life, basically. So that's the first chart example, then he gives a second, then he gives a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and he, he really just like starts outlining tons and tons of chart examples. Um, and that's, as I said, why the text is useful. So that's book two, um, dealing with houses, lots, and triplicity rulers for the most part as his primary focus. In book three, uh, he primarily deals with the length of life technique and the standard length of life technique that every astrologer used, probably derived from the work of Nechepso and Petasiris, where you first determine the um, overall ruler of the chart, the predominator and the overall ruler of the chart, and then you direct them forward using primary directions or circumambulations, as it's sometimes called until it hits the a hard aspect with the malefic and then when that happens the person that's supposed to be the end of the person's life or at least a major health crisis at that time so and that length of life technique became i think just a major preoccupation for astrologers from a for a long time from ancient times all the way up until pretty recently i feel like right yeah, sort of, uh, is it worth reading this chart anymore then, <laughs> right? Because the rate of mortality was fairly high. So it took a lot of math back then to be working with the chart. And if you could figure out pretty soon whether or not the person's going to stick around long enough to listen to your advice, um, you could kind of cut off the the work early. Yeah, I think, and I think that was like Ptolemy's explicit rationale. And he cites Petasiris and he says, there's no point in predicting great things for a person who isn't going to live long enough to see it, uh, the time period that you're talking about, which kind of makes sense from a practical standpoint. It's run into a little uh, sort of fallen out of vogue. There's a lot more debate about the appropriateness or even effectiveness of, of the length of life technique in modern times, some astrologers right. taking different sides. That's a whole episode I've been meaning to do at some point to talk about all the different technical and philosophical and ethical, even ethical or like yeah. moral issues surrounding that, because yeah. that's you know, it's something that's not typically done anymore in Western astrology, but then there's other traditions of astrology, like in India, where 
it is pretty commonly done. And that's just one of the things that's expected. So it's interesting seeing different attitudes in different um, eras of the astrological tradition or, or right. different um, cultural traditions, basically. Yeah, I know that I know some of our colleagues who studied with Robert Zoller, he made them calculate their length of life. And so some of them know and they're like, you know, walking around professional alongside us, you know, just knowing that tidbit. Um, but I, mm. I do appreciate when I've pursued learning medical astrology, the idea that it is more indicative of a medical crisis and not necessarily the end of life, but it is perhaps depending on what the nature of the crisis is, the end of a chapter of the life for sure. Um, and then also revising just the understanding of kind of the, yeah, innate kind of juice you've got your battery, you know, and like, if you be go beyond that prediction of length of life, then you're a little more vulnerable to the forces of the world. And yeah, it seems like that's kind of what we've done with medical science. Yeah, and that's been one of the questions or or sometimes points of debate is like whether medical science is advanced enough that something that would have killed you in the ancient world, you know, doesn't necessarily or that you might be able to survive it and and so therefore maybe sometimes it's just showing health, rough health periods, but they could be periods where, you know, you you make it through without necessarily dying. Yeah, and we have a different relationship to death in our society now at least in modern west than than they would have had in Greece. So Mm. Yeah. 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 So people for that chapter, for some guidance, can go back and, and listen to the previous episode I did on the Master of the Nativity, where I talk about some of the rules that are used that are very similar to Valens on uh, determining the predominator and the Master of the Nativity, as well as the Lord of the Nativity, as he calls them. So that's book two. There's a lot of like um, length of life stuff, as well as a bunch of more example charts that he uses on different topics for other techniques. In book four, Valens gets into different Time Lord techniques, which is probably the most one of the most interesting and important books that survives. He starts with a Time Lord technique that we sometimes call Quarters of the Moon, which um, isn't super popular yet, but I'm waiting for somebody to pick that up and, and get into it more than it has been, because that was one of the earliest, I think, Time Lord techniques that some of the Project Hindsight people were exploring in the 1990s. Um, I think that's the first technique that Valens deals with in book four. Then um, a few chapters later in book four, he introduces zodiac releasing or the technique that's come to be known as zodiac releasing now in modern times. And he deals with that for a few chapters. I think it's between chapters like four and 10 or something like that. This is Valens' primary uh, treatment of zodiac releasing. If people want to go back and study what Valens himself actually said about that, um, and that's the primary source where people like myself and others have recovered the technique and repopularized it. It's not because Valens was the only source for the technique, because there's other astrologers that mention it, like Rhetorius. Um, some of the periods associated with zodiac releasing get mentioned by Abu Mashar, and Valens himself seems to have gotten the technique from an earlier author named Abraham, because he actually refers to Abraham when he first introduces the technique. In a different chapter of the anthology, in I believe book two, um, but this is the most extensive treatment of zodiac releasing that it, that survives into modern times or from ancient times. So that's one of the reasons why it's so important. And all subsequent treatments of zodiac releasing now are predicated on these chapters. Did the other mentions of it ever frame what we call zodiac releasing in terms that could be teaching it to the reader, or is Valens the, or the only one who does that? Um, 
I think that Rhetorius just mentions it in passing and he's partially drawing on balance. So he's kind of like use the zodiac releasing technique because uh, Rhetorius has this um, chapter at one point where he's kind of unique among the ancient astrologers. Where he tells you roughly like all the techniques and what order to use them in that an ancient astrologer would have done for like a full chart reading. And he just like lists everything that you could possibly do and what sequence you should do it in. And at one point in passing, he's like, and uses a like releasing technique from the lot of spirit and fortune, just as Valens does. So he kind of like refers you back to Valens for the full treatment of that. Hmm. But it makes it clear that he's another astrologer that's aware of and that's using the technique. Um, so it's the Abraham text that would have gone into more detail about it. And it seems like when Valens first introduces it in book two or three, he introduces it within the context of a discussion about how to determine when a person will travel or will be away from home. And it seems like that may have been the original context in which the Abraham text introduced it um, because of the way that Valens initially talks about it earlier in the anthology. And what's interesting about that is, um, so we have Valens referring to this earlier text attributed to Abraham, but then Firmicus Maternus in the fourth century he also starts talking about this Abraham text when when Firmicus starts talking about uh, the lots and especially the lot of spirit and the lot of fortune. So um, it seems that Firmicus had access to the same text and basically confirms that it was a text that dealt with the lots, um, especially spirit and fortune. And of course, Valens is reading the same text and he's drawing a timing technique from it that's based on the lot of spirit and the lot of fortune. So. It's clear that this text from Abraham was like floating around in the ancient world and was influencing different astrologers. But unfortunately, all that survives of it are these references to it in Valens and these references to it in in Firmicus and other authors. Yeah, we got to get our hands on that one. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of texts like that. There's like that. There's also the Nechepso and Petasiris texts, which is this super crucial, like very early source text that outlined many of the fundamental principles of of Hellenistic astrology from the earliest strata of the tradition. And that's another text that doesn't survive, but that's one of the reasons, again, why Valens is so important because he had access to it, he was reading it, and sometimes in the anthology he will quote excerpts from it so that we can actually see glimpses of what that early source text was like and actually reconstruct some bits of it just based on what Valens says about it. So that's probably you know, the other reason it's not just Valens is important, not just because he was a practicing astrologer and he used tons of example charts, like that is super useful, but Valens is also important because his work is one of the longest surviving works from the ancient world on ancient astrology. And he cited just dozens of different authors who no longer whose works no longer survive. So that Valens is our only source for preserving any knowledge of those ancient works, even though they were super influential in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a gift yeah. he gave to his students and us. Yeah. It's a really huge deal then that this text survives. And it's it's crazy that it does survive at all because, you know, until modern times, texts like this had to be copied over by hand by scribes. So you literally had to have one copy of the text and then you had to copy it onto a piece of papyrus by hand. And um, that even that process sometimes was tricky, and sometimes mistakes could be introduced. So there was a lot of work that had to be done in modern times in order to 
clean it up and edit it and reconstruct what the original text was. There's a place in that, in this one, where we encountered that as we put the book together. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so that was in book seven or book nine, where, um, you know, it, it, it gets into the house division issue where Valens uses more than 100 chart examples in the text. Virtually all of those use whole sign houses, where he just tells you the sign of the ascendant, and then all the other house placements are based on what sign the planet occupies relative to the rising sign. Um, and many of those chart examples, pretty much all of them, only work within the context of whole sign houses. So that it would, it wasn't just a matter of convenience, but many of the examples that he uses to demonstrate things like perfections only make sense if he's using whole sign houses. Um, however, there are some chapters and some passages. For example, there's one passage in book three where he shows you how to out, outline quadrant houses. Um, using the porphyry method of house division. And he uses that, he appears to use that as a secondary overlay on top of whole sign houses. And then there's another passage in book nine where he seems to be summarizing from an earlier text attributed to Asclepius. And he mentions Asclepius at the beginning of this chapter. And then he goes through this super like abbreviated outline about both doing derivative houses. And then eventually he introduces how to calculate equal houses, which is probably from the Asclepius text, because Firmicus also had the Asclepius text, and he also introduces equal houses um, as a secondary overlay. So at the end of this chapter, Valens starts saying something. He, he tells you how to calculate equal houses, and then he starts saying something about what happens if the equal houses overlap entirely with the whole sign houses. Um, but then the text breaks off suddenly, and there's some unrelated natal chart interpretations that were taken from a specific passage in book seven that were then copied over into the text um, where it's like some really negative delineations about like dying and being um, uh, sort of tied up or other things like that that are like really extreme and just obviously not related to what he was just talking about with house division. So what's funny about that is some people have accidentally misread that and assumed that this was like Valen saying that you shouldn't use whole sign houses, but they overlooked that there was just a textual issue here. And Valens was literally just like, or the copyists actually accidentally copied these natal chart delineations from an earlier section of the anthology, which is not unique because that actually has happened in a bunch of different places in the anthology where the manuscripts sort of got messed up and kind of got um, confused in different places uh, over time. I remember this lecture that Rob Hand gave in like 2005, where he said that he always imagined that somebody in the Middle Ages like took the manuscripts of Valens and then threw them up in the air and then shuffled them together, and then that's the text that we have today. So that <laughs> that gives you some idea of like, you know, will you do that at the launch? Throw your hands the, in the air, right? <laughs> Wave just like Valens throw it around, like, like you just don't care. <laughs> yeah, anthology confetti. Um, yeah. That would, I'm sure the scholars in the future would really appreciate that as they're trying to like reconstruct our version of this text. If there's another UAC, I'm going to be on the committee to make the anthology confetti. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but anyway. Yeah, but so, this is it's a it is a big deal though to find these types of scribal um, transmissions and and straighten them out. You know, I mean that's a really important contribution to be able to like identify and show people like this scary few sentences after this whole other passage 
don't really belong here because turn back to chapter seven and you can see these are copied from that and something else was supposed to be here. Yeah. Well, and it's just, and it's like Riley flagged some of that in his translation, but he didn't always flag as much of it as he could have. And um, with Riley's translation, we did do some editing of it to to catch major obvious typos. Um, or in some instances, there were some chart examples where um, the received text had the wrong placement for a planet. And so we were able to identify that, or other academics have identified that, and we were able to put the correct position in the text. Um, but for the most part, we try to just let Riley's translation speak for itself and put it in a final format. We we're all also able to finish some tables, especially in book eight, that he didn't include in the PDF back in 2010, so that this version really does represent a much more complete and as close as it's going to get to a final translation from Riley of this text. But otherwise, we tried to leave it and let it speak for itself. And I expect that there will probably be other translations of Valens by different scholars in the future. Um, but it was important to finally get Riley's translation in print and just let it sort of get out there so it can speak for itself and so people can use it and build on his scholarship. But they also at the same time need to be aware that there are textual issues with the text and there's still areas that are being explored and that you need to be careful about sometimes when it comes to just being aware of potential issues like that. Yeah, and I think you've done a really beautiful job as a publisher bringing everything together in that sense of, you know, giving chart examples in context, giving complete tables, helping Riley polish things to the standard that we know of now with minor errors being discovered and things so that um and also giving it a body because doing research on a PDF is very hard, I think for a lot of us, a lot of even now like screen time, it's sort of the last thing I want to do is spend more time in front of a computer. Um, mm. So to have a book, you can light a candle, hang out with Riley's translation of Valens, and and the book itself. I think you learn differently when you're reading, and you ha you can hold it, and it's not just a printed PDF. You know, I think there's a different um, experience of of Valens that you're about to make available for a lot of people. And I mean, even these little blue pamphlets from Project Hindsight don't capture the fullness of like having everything together under one spine. You know. And yeah. to get the survey together with it, you know, can you, I've, we haven't talked, I think enough about the survey and how yeah. important it is to have it with this, you know? Yeah. So it's like, even though, you know, there's a place for, for eBooks and PDF books and things like that, and, and that's really important and valuable and, and more accessible. Um, you know, I'm still a big proponent of print books and the important of having print books, you know, on your shelves and things like that. And I think that's a really important and valuable piece of uh, especially for astrologers of our intellectual history and of what the transmission of astrology has been like for thousands of years of um, you know writing something down and building up these libraries of the inherited um, theoretical and practical and, and conceptual and philosophical tradition of astrology and passing that on sometimes through book form. So that was one of the things that's important about this that we're trying to do with this publication and that I'm really happy that we were able to pull off here in the way that we were able to do. Um, I do want to mention the survey. Let me finish the overview really quickly of what people are All going right. to find in the rest of the book. So yes, yes. Um, he deals with quarters in book four, then Zodiac releasing, but then starting in, in chapter 11, he begins um, the main technique that actually he spends the most time talking about in the anthology, which is he introduces uh, the technique that we know today as the concept of annual perfections. 
So annual perfections is introduced in book four, chapter 11. Um, and Valens actually, um, again, it's like at crucial, crucial stages in the anthology, he keeps using this one mysterious chart example that he knows a lot about. And of course, we find this chart example is the one that he introduces at this point when he first introduces annual perfections. And it's, again, his own chart. So Valens introduces annual perfections here. He spends most of the rest of book four, which is a huge amount of chapters, talking about annual perfections and different ways to use the technique. And then eventually in books five and six, he keeps re returning back to the technique of annual perfections and introducing different ways to use the technique and different advanced methods of understanding how to use annual perfections. Because even though most other authors in the Hellenistic and medieval tradition use a much more simplified version of annual perfections, Valens has one of the most complex and advanced treatments of, of annual perfections, I think, of any ancient author. So he's very interesting and very important because that technique is one of his sort of centerpieces of the ent entire anthology. So that's books four, five, and six. Five and six also have some interesting digressions about he's got this long like philosophical digression about like fate and um, fortune, and he talks about like stoicism with some hermetic influences essentially, or he has some very stoic sounding philosophical digressions. He also mentions briefly um, electional astrology and different rules for electional astrology that he pays attention to himself. Then in book seven, book seven is the one book that's like much more self-contained, and it primarily just deals with a single timing technique or a couple of related techniques, which are um, timing by ascensional times of the planets as well as planetary periods, and then different combinations of using ascensional times and planetary periods together in order to indicate when different parts of the chart will be activated in the person's life. Um, in book seven, it has one of the most famous set of examples where he has this chapter of this group of people that got involved on a shipwreck. And one of those people was, again, probably Valens himself. And he actually went around after the shipwreck collecting chart examples from people. And he tries to show how each of their charts all indicated having this major um, traumatic event all at the same time based on this timing technique of essential times and planetary periods. So it's a pretty cool and famous example. Then in book eight, most of this is dedicated to this um, elaborate alternative length of life technique that involves a table, which was not included in Riley's 2010 translation of the text, but that we've, um, with Mark's help, have actually been able to include in the text at the end of it. And this is kind of a complicated technique that's going to be interesting if people work with it at some point and kind of reconstruct and start using this technique again. Um, but it's most of book eight is de dedicated to that technique. Then finally, book nine is kind of like an assortment of a bunch of different things. Um, so it's not on a singular technique, but instead he returns to things like length of life. He talks about the lot of fortune and lot of spirit. He talks about derivative houses for the first time, drawing on the Asclepius text and mentioning um, equal houses, where again, he's probably summarizing this text from Asclepius because he doesn't ever actually use equal houses in a single chart example in the anthology, which is one of the reasons why I think he's summarizing this text. And also in book three, he introduces quadrant houses as a secondary overlay. And I think Valens actually 
preferred quadrant houses as a secondary overlay on top of whole sign houses instead of using equal houses for that purpose. But there's other astrologers like Ptolemy who may have preferred equal houses as the secondary overlay. Um, it was kind of a choice between what sign everybody used whole sign houses as the basis, but then everybody had a choice between what degree-based form of house division to use. And some of them chose quadrant houses like, like Porphyry and others used um, equal houses. So book nine just becomes an assortment, then it breaks off. Then there's a few miscellaneous chapters that were added to the anthology in the fifth century. And we can tell that they're from the fifth century because they use a few chart examples that are actually datable to like the 400s. Um, and then that's the end of the text. So that's sort of a very broad overview of what you'll find in the anthology. Yeah. And an index, which you don't get in a PDF. Yeah. So we in included an index so people can easily look through some topics or different authors that are mentioned during the course of the anthology. So that's going to be super helpful for research. Um, I wrote a, a, a few page preface to the text. And then we also included Mark's original 50 page survey or overview of the anthology. Since even though he released that as a PDF, because he never got to publish it as part of that German classical series, it never appeared in print. And I thought it was important enough uh, contribution, especially with some of Mark's work on the chronology of Vadius Valens, that it deserved to finally appear in print together with his translation. Yeah, and it gives it a wonderful context for what follows, so that you know you can, similar to your book, you know, there's the history and then there's the practice, and so you have a sense of like what does this matter, you know, and you get a really, um, yeah, nice also honoring Riley's academic work on Valens. It's good. Yeah, exactly, and it just sort of honors that and, and completes that whole link in the tradition because there's so many, so much work and so many different scholars put work into this and to to have this text to survive into where it is today. Um, it's really important to sort of recognize those contributions and have them sort of brought to completion in some sense. And that was part of what this project was about for me. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's it remains a primary source, you know, even in translation, you know, you're putting a primary source back into wide circulation, um, which I think is also a very powerful service to the community, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it feels like an honor, especially having learned ancient astrology largely through reading that earlier translation of Valens's text and then eventually writing my book on it in 2017 it feels good to be able to sort of honor Valens by putting his text out there and um, making it accessible to students of astrology again mm -hmm. um, in the same way that Valens himself was a student of astrology and he you know he definitely wanted his work to survive in some form and that's why he left that left it to some of his students. So in this way, we're able to sort of honor that and um, put it back in circulation so that he kind of gets his rightful place in the history of astrology as, as one of the great astrologers in history. Yeah. Do you think you'll be working with some of these timing techniques that you mentioned, quarters of the moon and then everything in chapter eight? Will you be working with those in your students to perhaps bring them into wider focus? Yeah, one of my things, you know, my techniques have primarily been zodiac releasing and annual perfections in the way that Valens has taught them. And in my my book and in my course in Hellenistic Astrology, I go into really um, elaborate. We had done some commentaries at one point where we sat together as a group and and went through and read Valens's text and then talked about um, what he was saying and what the implications were and how that applied to charts and what some of those different techniques meant. Because sometimes is only through sitting with a group of other people and reading through the text together that you can really start to 
understand and dissect like what he was actually trying to say. So I'm hoping to do some more of that commentary with students of my Hellenistic course over time where we go through other chapters of the text and talk about it um, and, and record some of those commentaries for other students just in order to help further understand you know, what, what the teachings were. Yeah. And having the table seems like it would be helpful for that new technique and the length of life technique in chapter eight. Yeah, for sure. Because even if you're reading a translation, sometimes it takes some extra help of somebody that has a little bit more understanding of it or has access to the Greek text to sometimes understand and help navigate um, trying to reconstruct how you can actually apply some of these principles in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, all right. So the book is coming out on Sunday, on October 16th, 2022. Um, the book's available now. You can go ahead and order it either for pre-order or if it's after the 16th, you can already order it through online retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, ABE Books, and tons of other places. There's going to be an ebook version that will be forthcoming soon through Google Books and then potentially other places, but it might take a little bit longer to get it on Kindle and other things like that. Um, I have set up a page where I'm going to list any typos that are found because there's always typos in different books once they come out. So before issuing like different editions or other things of the book, if you want to look for a list of typos or corrections, you can go to hellenisticastrology.com slash valens, and I'll have a link there for um, a list of different things uh, for just corrections in the future. And I'll also be doing some of those commentaries on different chapters with students in my Hellenistic course, as I said, through my course at theastrologyschool.com. So yeah, this was a huge project. I wanted to thank you in particular, because this project never would have happened, Jen, without your prompting where I was talking to you in like, you know, 2020 about wanting to put those chart examples in the book and needing to do that and feeling that was important because I'd been doing smaller versions of that for my students for years, but I realized that a lot of people really just weren't understanding the text without a publicly available version of that. And you were the one I think that just mentioned offhand, you were sort of like, well, why don't you just ask Riley if you can publish his translation with those chart examples inserted? And I hadn't considered that up to that point. And then I asked him and talked to him about it and he graciously agreed. And then the rest is kind of history, but all of that is is thanks to you at this point. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad I could Spurn that and get it going. It's one of my favorite things to do. So it's it's a beautiful thing to see it come and actually be in existence. Um, I have the other proof copy here. Yes, that is the like the second copy. So only the copy like two out of three that will ever exist <laughs> in the world of the very first proof copies that we've already updated to fix a few typos that we caught at the last moment. But um, you didn't just like gen wasn't just the genesis of the idea or helped to spur the idea, but you also helped to shepherd and usher this project to completion by doing the layout of the book, which is like a huge mammoth job that you've taken on over the past couple of years. And um, yeah, and had and to I, keep I, secret. That was the hardest part. It wasn't the work. It was not getting to talk about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's nice finally be able to, to to release it now that it's real and to, and to get it out there and to acknowledge all the work you put into it. Um, we also had other people helping us like Paula Bellomini did all the illustrations and the diagrams for the book, as well as the cover. Um, we had Mikhail Medyev, who did the index for us, which was um, amazing and was very, very helpful, especially in some of the last minute fixes and updates. And also Claire Ruches, who um, helped us with some of the uh, diagrams and chart examples and other early work on the book, which was super crucial. Yeah, it takes a village 
Yeah, it's like a big process. And you know this because you are the head of a whole publishing company at this point, and you actually specialize in, in helping different astrologers to publish their books as kind of like an in-between between the like huge publishing companies at this point, which aren't doing a super great job anymore and, and are hardly publishing as many astrology books as they used to versus the other extreme end of the spectrum, which is people starting to move towards self-publishing. But that can be like a huge um, task and burden to take on. You're sort of occupying a really interesting middle ground there where you're helping to publish different astrologers' books for them and to, to make them actually really good and really impressive and not look just like self-published books, essentially, right? Yeah, the the mission of Revelor Press is to be something that takes risks on books we know we need for our community that don't necessarily have an instant market uh, draw that, that a larger publisher would say, well, we don't want to publish your advanced book because we don't want to put an investment that we're not going to get back. Um, and what they don't understand sometimes is that it's worth taking that risk because if you make something excellent, then it will find its home. So I've worked with many people in our community to make excellent books with them, sometimes within Revelor Press, sometimes like with you, or work with you um, independently. Um, and I also work with the Mountain Astrologer. I'm the senior editor of the Mountain Astrologer. And sometimes people will bring in articles and I, I see an article and I'm like, that's a book. <laughs> Come over, let's talk, right? Because then this article can grow into something that needs to have its name on the spine to join our ancestors, which are standing all behind me. Um, and so, yeah, book culture is really important, especially as we move forward into an age where the digital might not survive or in the way that we can, like what can it be accessed on a floppy disk, right? Certain media forms do shift. And so the technology of the book is, is really important, uh, and has not gone away since its invention. So by engaging with that and allowing our ideas to become in an immortal conversation. That room is very loud, by the way. I know they're being quiet because I'm recording with you, but if you stand in there, you can feel all of these discussions of like, you know, this technique, no, this technique, you know, and it's like, right. you can see all of that cross pollination and then read a footnote and walk across the room and get that book and then look that up. And then they have a footnote and you go across the room in the other direction and get that book. And then soon your table's covered with these amazing books. And it's like, it's like heaven on earth to have yeah, this here. So that really thinks it makes me think of like one of the ways like publishing books uh is one of the ways that astrologers achieve almost a form of immortality because our our work and our thoughts and our observations continue to echo and reverberate throughout history and throughout the astrological tradition through those being passed down and that some of those discussions and some of those debates that happen um only survive through that printed form and the transmission of that but it's really interesting way you just mentioning that made me made me think of that and made me realize that a little bit more yeah i mean behind me here besides the project hindsight materials there's also newsletters where people in the community would write in and now we do a lot of that work on public forums like it used to be the yahoo group and now it's on facebook and it might be shifting to discord servers or even you know inside patreon communities but those conversations that are only captured digitally can't join this party, right? So print publication still is very important for recording what we say and giving an immortality to our statements so that we can speak to the people who aren't born yet. And just like how you're bringing Valens to life or Valens to life again, 2000 years after his, you know, not been on the planet for a while, you know, so it's like, 
that's so such an important thing. And to also speak to self-publishing has a deep history. I didn't know this until I unpacked all the books in this building, but astrologers have been self-publishing from Jump Street. And that's partly because we have a kind of forbidden subject at our fingertips. Um, and sometimes people didn't want the gatekeeping that publishing can provide as well. Um, but it, it's also like, there's these really cool pamphlets with hand-drawn diagrams and, you know, weird monospace type writer printings and, you know, various types of things. And those are important. The difficulty right now is when someone goes to self-publish, they're hard to find. Unless you know what you're looking for, it's hard to find. So when people go to a publishing house like Revelor Press, you can see, oh, this is a place where I know I'm going to find something cool. And you don't know what you're going to find yet, but you know, if you look, it'll be cool. And if you are self-published, you don't have a community around you to like draw attention to your book. It's just simply sitting there. Um, and so I've seen some amazing books be self-published in this year alone. And one way that I'm trying to bring them back into the community is to have them come to the library and, and talk about their books so that others can know about it. Um, because otherwise it's just a silo and ultimately Google and Amazon are just search engines. But in order to search with that, instead of stumbling around a library and finding something cool, you have to already know what you're looking for. And if you don't know it exists, you can't find it. Mm. So that actually brings up one last point, which is um, also the importance of libraries. And it's kind of sad how that's declined in terms of astrological libraries. There used to be more of them. There used to be more books, astrology books on shelves in bookstores. But I've noticed that the astrology books on shelves and bookstores has really shrank a lot over the past decade or two. Um, I mean, even bookstores, for that matter, themselves are kind of like becoming somewhat of a scarcity in some places compared to what it was like ten or twenty years ago. Um, but that's one of your sort of life missions as well, is to create a very comprehensive astrological library, right? Yes, I was turned on to astrology as a teenager and wanted to get higher degrees in it. And so I'm like super envious that you got to graduate from Kepler because I always wanted to attend Kepler College. Um, but then eventually you and I were on the board of Kepler in 2015, 2016, and their books were in storage. And it was part of their mission as a nonprofit to offer library services. So I just moved heaven and earth to get those books out of storage. And um, and because of the pandemic, they ended up needing to close their library. So I said, okay, I'm here. I'm still here. Bring them to me. And so I ended up, you know, you were the one who had, had like actually alerted me to that um, needing to happen. And so I said, okay, let's make them a new home. And so that's what I've been doing basically since that conversation. And the instance for that is about this. It's about the idea that when you go to a library, even at a university, they don't collect books about astrology because they don't think astrology is academic enough. In the same way that I'm sure Riley working on this text when he was working on it had very limited resources and or needed to go very far to find the things appropriate to translating what Valens was saying. So if we create a research institute that focuses on the academic study of astrology and it's not affiliated with any one university, we have this like neutral ground of simply gathering everything that we've said around our subject and allowing people to discover and research and perform all of these skills. But if you don't have it at your fingertips, it's hard to do the research and that increases the fact or it would increase like astrology being less accessible, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can create a culture of research in a place where it's easily accessible, then we can amplify and accelerate the research that we do. Okay. So it's not just about creating a library for a library's sake, but also creating a, a research institute 
and what is the name and, and where is it located? And you have an, a whole building, a whole facility at this point. Yes. So I've been working in print for 25 years now and it became very clear to me that without having some kind of control over the space, landlords could hunt you out of a space and cause you to free fall and find a new space to be in moving books is not fun. Everybody knows that. So mm -hmm. um, I was able to secure this um, 1500 square foot building in Olympia. Um, my aunt passed away and left me some income. So I invested it all into this library. And it is um, called the Celestial Arts Education Library. It's a 15 minute walk away from Olympia High School. And at some point, I'd like to have regular programming for youth so that they can get into uh, looking at the stars in a new way, learning about the lunation cycle, and then slowly question like, what's upstairs? Oh, that's the members only research area. Like, oh, I want to go up there. And then they realize astrology has been with human culture from the beginning. So that's the website. Um, it's called Kaylee for short, um, C-A-E-L-I of the vault of heaven, a genitive Latin form. Um, but the idea is that this is the place where we gather all of the work in almost anthropological sense so that anyone wanting to research how people were publishing almanacs with different publishing houses that are, you know, the big five, there's a shelf of all of them. If you want to cross compare or how, how many covers did Liz Green's book of this title have, you know, and you just can see over the ages, like how things have been even Demetra's early workbooks have been reprinted four or five times with totally different covers, you know? Mm. And so just to see that print culture and how different decades responded to needing different typography and fonts and all of that. So there's a whole entire sometimes, realm. Sometimes books change between editions too. There can be minor, sometimes major like revisions in a book. You know, you know, my book has two editions at this point because of correcting some typos. I think there's going to be a third edition soon, but even ancient astrology books um the beginning of Paulus Alexandrinus in the 4th century he like mentions his son Chronomon who was hassling him about not using the most up to date tables so he says at the beginning of the book that this is a second edition so he could you know fix the issue that his son pointed out uh to make the book more accurate yeah and i came across changes like that in more insidious ways so when i was pursuing my PhD in astrological culture at the University of Berkeley, um, University of California, Berkeley. There was a book by a guy named Oscar Schmidt who wrote in 1922, a book called The Spirit of Astrology, and it was reprinted four different times. And the fourth time was in 1937. And by that point, the Nazis had been in power for four years. And the book you read in 1937 is very different in some ways than the one that was published in 1922, but they don't mention it. You have to actually read both line by line to see what's missing and what was mm. changed. Um, and it was realizing that back way back, like in at least like 2009, 2010, again, going back to that timing where I realized like no one has collected enough of this material to see that these things are being changed this way and, and then writing about it and what it means. Right. So obviously there, the implication would be that there were certain things you couldn't print in Nazi Germany that were okay to print, you know, years before. But um, but giving people the space to do those comparisons, I think, is important. You know. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. That's really exciting. So you're in uh, Olympia, Washington, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's office hours and events. I know you're starting to do different events. 
uh, and we might do a, another like a book launch uh, for yeah. this later this month. I would love to have you over for a book launch virtually and have other virtual guests ask you questions about the book and have a kind of that's how I've done it so far. Earlier this year, I was hosting a few authors for launches where people could ask questions to the author directly. And it was a very sort of cozy event as if it were in person, but it was on Zoom. And mm. the building is accessible currently by members by appointment only. And we're slowly unfolding the events calendar, both for online and uh, in-person events. And so that's still in development as we sort of make our way into actually being able to open the building. So brilliant. Well, that's really exciting. And I, I mean, it's if it's not already, it's it's probably going to become pretty shortly like the the biggest astrological library in north in North America, perhaps in the in the Western Hemisphere. I know I've I know of only one other library that's larger, and that is Philip Graves, who you're probably going to be like vying for for not a vying. No, no, no. We work together. No. We work together okay. actually every week. So we have a very solid conversation going, and it's my goal to have him be the remote main librarian for us here because he knows everything about the history of astrology books. And even in some cases, the history of astrological techniques. And so um, he and I have been working very closely for the a lot part of this year to um, kind of become a kind of consortium, you know, of of astrological research. Yeah. And I was just joking by saying vying. I know that you're also going to publish his book here sometime later in the year or early next year. And I was looking forward to uh, interviewing him, but that book is coming out through your company. Yeah, we're intending for a December date. All things cross your fingers. I've actually been working on it um, this week, so it's been percolating for quite some time. But as you know, as one project wraps up, then you can turn to the next paper child and <laughs> the next one. So there's kind of I think of it almost sometimes as like an airport. So there's planes on the tarmac, and I'm like, okay, you're going to take off this time. You're going to take off that time. Um, and you don't really like having delays or lost baggage. So it's like you got to keep it right. all moving at this level of just seeing the projects go off. But I also love that moment, though, and I would encourage anyone listening to the podcast to like when you have that, you know, research instinct or you get, you know, passionate about something in the same way that, Chris, you've been passionate about Valens and his work. Just keep running with it and tell everyone and write something and just go for it, you know, and and it might turn into a book or an article or something where your your ideas about it enter this permanent conversation. We need your work to like be a part of it, you know. Yeah, that's part of the 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 dialogue that sustains the astrological tradition is that continuing dialogue between both talking to people, you know, directly or in person, but also sometimes talking to people um, through time, through written works, and the, you know, astrology becomes that language that transcends time and culture and everything else. Um, and this is this is a really good example of that when we're talking about the work of a astrologer who lived almost two thousand years ago, surviving and and becoming relevant again to us today, and and speaking to us in some significant way. Right, and new evidence will always come to light. You can't help that. And by allowing Riley's work to have completion in this form, you're also throwing down the gauntlet to say, make a better translation, someone out there, improve on mm -hmm. this, like, give us more, give us push back against it and say, oh, well, I just found this new piece of evidence that adds this to the picture. So now we see clearer, you know, um, and that's an important part of it is to just participate. And, and, and yeah, I just love all of that part. Yeah, that the, sometimes the recovery of ancient astrology is an ongoing process. And it's a process that has different stages. Um, but I think we're 
entering a new stage now with the publication of this book and some of the others over the past two years where um, the picture is starting to become much clearer and, and we've almost finished sort of recovering most of ancient astrology at this point so that we understand way better than we did 30 years ago. Actually, that's the other thing. It's it's 30 years. This is the end yeah. of the Saturn return mm -hmm. of Project Hindsight that was started with Saturn and Aquarius. I completely forgot about this. And Valens is coming out as Saturn stations direct the final time before it departs from Aquarius early next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Brilliant. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Cool. And All congratulations right. well, to you. Yeah. Well, my ascendant is at like 17 degrees of Aquarius and stationing on my ascendant at the same time. And and Valens' son is on my ascendant. And weirdly, I noticed just the other day, I'd forgotten that him and I have the reversed sun and moon because he's sun in Aquarius and moon in Scorpio. And I'm sun in Scorpio and moon in Aquarius. So there's some funny, funny things, funny contacts and things like that. And it all feels very appropriate and very full circle. Yeah. Um, so your yeah. pseudonym when you write another astrology book is going to be in Valens? Like balance, I don't know. Inverse balance. Yeah, yeah. The reverse <laughs> reverse balance. Um to, we'll have to workshop that. I'll workshop that. We'll have to work on that name. Yeah, no. Um, I mean now that I said it, it's not a secret, so you have to pick something else. Um Yeah. Uh we, there was a joke at Project Hindsight that were about like a fake astrologer named Fraudius who <laughs> that we'd come up with that would introduce really like weird techniques. That's very frontal, Fraudius. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Goodness me. Um, all right. Well, thanks. I know we're out of time and you got to go uh, do other important, like 20 other things as you're, <laughs> as you're always doing with TMA and the library and, and other book projects. So thanks a lot for joining me for this today, this discussion. Thanks for helping me to launch this book and get Balance out there. And um, yeah, I look forward to having you back again to talk about other book projects and other library projects in the future. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. And a congratulations again to you and Mark Riley. Thank you. All right. I'll put links to everything in the description below this video on YouTube where you can find the book or on the Astrology Podcast website. Uh, but other than that, that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for watching and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrology podcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system 
that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, and The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs and Calendars, available at honeycomb.co.